Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Optimism in government as COVID cases fall 20% in a week, but tighter travel restrictions between Ireland and Britain to combat the Delta virus variant. Angry Donegal homeowners take to the streets of Dublin in their thousands to demonstrate over their crumbling mica homes. My house is eventually going to crumble to the floor. If we don't get it, what we want, we're going to block M50, we're going to block a porch, we're coming back the next time with vengeance. And soccer star Christian Eriksen posts this picture as he recovers from his Euro 2020 cardiac arrest. Later we talk about your heart health and how to react in a crisis. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. was an unprecedented show of people power as thousands of angry Donegal homeowners took their protests over the mica crisis to the heart of the capital. The government has promised action on the redress scheme. Here's Paul Quinn on an extraordinary day of demonstrations in Dublin. They say they've been treated like second-class citizens and completely abandoned through no fault of their own. And today, they took their fight to the capital. Thousands of people impacted by the mica crisis, the majority from Donegal, gathered outside the convention centre, there to voice their anger. There's that many people here in Dublin, and there's, hey, there's not even a GA match on from Donegal. And it's just, it's, it's gelled that many people around here. It's, it's affected so many families. How, like, oh. an OIP living on state pension um, with no big private uh, pension fund, how are we to come up with 10 and 40%? It, it just won't happen. Uh, we will actually be homeless, and it's very scary. It's a very scary prospect for somebody of my age. They're uh, equal citizens, you know, they're no second-class citizens in Ireland. Everybody's equal, like, you know. And they're treated to as a second-class citizen. It's, very, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's very sad. They came from other parts of the country too, including Mayo, Sligo, Limerick and Clare, each one with a similar story. Um, my house is eventually going to crumble to the floor. It's been tested and the result was proven to be total demolition. Life is very hard. We just can't move on. You can't make any plans. You can't. There's no point in doing anything to the house because you're throwing good money after bad continuously, which I have done for the last 20 years. The house is just cracking up on the sides and it's, you know, I'd never be able to sell it and it's going to be a huge fix. I'd probably have to demolish it, I'm not sure, but engineers tell me I will have to demolish it. And we have no uh, redress scheme in Sligo at all yet. A convoy of buses left the northwest early this morning. Families at the centre of this controversy, their friends and neighbours there to show support. It's believed more than 6,000 people in Donegal and Mayo are affected, with the walls of their homes cracking and crumbling away. Protesters say the current 90% redress scheme doesn't go far enough. Many face having to pay up to €100,000 each to demolish and rebuild their homes. 
They say anything less than 100% redress won't work. We're coming down today and we're going to leave our heads held high. And if we don't get it, we, if we don't get it what we want, we're going to block M50, we're going to block the ports. We're coming back the next time with vengeance. This afternoon, protesters then made their way from the convention centre towards government buildings and onto Leinster House. The pressure now turns to those in power to meet their demands. Paul Quinn with that report. Well, let's join our political correspondent, Gavin Riley now. And Gavin, they came in their busloads today. It was a very visible uh, sign of protest from demonstrators who really want action and they want redress. Now, the government has made a decision. Is it enough to appease those protesters today? I think we'll only find that out clear inside the next couple of days when those protesters go back to Donegal, when they discuss with their communities or those who certainly didn't make the journey today and see what the next steps are. The government appears to be approaching this, it has to be said, with an open mind. Those who came to Dublin today from Donegal and from uh, Mayo and Sligo and Clare and Limerick, as you heard in Paul's report a moment ago, did largely get what they came for. They came to put this on the government agenda. They came to make their voices heard. They ended up getting an impromptu meeting with the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. They were able to hand over letters and petitions exactly as they wanted. But on the question of the 100% redress, that is still something in which the government is holding out a little bit of reservations. We heard in the Dáil today, Mary Lou Macdonald asked the Taoiseach five separate times, was the government going to commit to 100% full redress for these people? And in each of those five times, the Taoiseach didn't quite answer. He says that the government wants to do everything it practically can do for these people, but it also says that the scheme that the government might put in place has to be sustainable. And given the possible costs that might be incurred by all of these individual households when it comes to surveys, when it comes to full demolition, when it comes to possibly full rebuilding in some individual cases, the costs could be far, far higher than the €1 billion Euro, uh, committed by the government originally. So although the government does want to do the right thing, it has to figure out how it can pay for all of that and still not find itself completely on the hook, how it might be able to go back to insurers, builders, suppliers and the like. All very difficult to do in practice, but at least in principle, the government is on the same page about this. And Gavin, moving on to COVID measures today and further restrictions announced for people um, travelling here from Britain. Um, politically, though, they seem keen to reassure us that the reopening timeline will go to plan here. Is there any threat that it may not? There is no threat as of yet, but I think those who you ask in government buildings about this are deferring to the next round of government decisions that have to be made about this. We don't know whether that's going to be next week or the week after, but certainly as it stands, the reopening of indoor hospitality and the further relaxation of measures goes ahead in three weeks' time. But there are some government figures, it has to be said, who privately are much more nervous about this. For example, there was a couple pointing out that if you're to reopen society in three weeks' time and you try to have as many people with their second AstraZeneca jab for example as possible by that time that would mean that you'd need to have those people jabbed really by this weekend in order for them to have their two full weeks of protection before society reopens the t-shirt today uh, telling the doll and paul reed telling virgin media news that it'll be five weeks before they've caught that up. So I think there will be a lot of deference shown to the advice of Neffet. As it seems right now, they aren't terribly worried. The likes of Tony Houlihan, uh, Philip Nolan, Killian Degoscu, not particularly worried about the spread of the Delta variant in the public as it stands. But obviously, they would rather have prevention better than cure, which is why they've taken the step today of requiring uh, immigrants from Britain to, to stay at home for at least 10 days and not have the get out after five. It's not a hugely uh, elaborate or radical step, it has to be said. There are some in Enster House who would like man hotel quarantine for all British arrivals, but the government believes that with the open door to Northern Ireland, it's simply not practicable and that this is the limit of what they can practically do. OK, uh, politically also announced today was this date for the by-election in Dublin Bay South. What kind of race can we expect there, Gavin? 
Uh, a short and sharp one because we're going to have the writ moved in the dole tomorrow and possibly polling only about three weeks afterwards. I think the date that's being floated around, which we'll only have confirmed tomorrow after polling order issued, is going to be Thursday the 8th of July. It is pretty much legally as short a campaign as the government parties can possibly manage. And of course, it does coincide with uh, the Fine Gael Ardesh, which kicked off this evening, which now goes on for five days, which does give Fine Gael a little bit of a leg up in the media cycle. But I think you'll probably find every other party contesting the race with, from within government and also from outside trying to make this about housing. Government parties trying to promise that they have the programme the program on the right track. Opposition parties saying that you can't trust either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or the Greens. I suspect it could be a single issue by election. And given the way the polls are right now in the capital, you can't say it's home and hose. It will be interesting to see exactly how capable the government parties are of holding that narrative for the three weeks of the campaign. Okay, Gavin Riley, our political correspondent, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, I'm joined now by Fine Gael TD, Kieran O'Donnell, and Roisin Shortall of the Social Democrats. I want to get on first to this MICA issue. Mm. Um, and hasn't this protest really been a wake up call for government? We've known about the MICA issue for some time, for mm. many years, in fact. Why did it take 50 busloads of protesters to come down to the capital for some sort of action to be announced on it? Well, the government are very conscious uh, with, with the MICA, the problem, for quite a considerable period of time. I think what today was very much a huge amount of frustration from people living their homes. I can only imagine what it's like. We have the pirate issue in Limerick. Uh, we have some people now uh, with the concrete blocks in Limerick as well. And I think what has now happened has very much, I suppose, come out of today is there is uh, a working group being established. It reports in a finite period of time by the 31st of July. Uh, both the, the Taoiseach and the Minister for, for Housing have both stated that we will look at changing the scheme to ensure that it works for the people themselves. And the working group will involve the, the Mike Action Group in Donegal, uh, the local authorities, also the groups from Mayo. Uh, and we get something here that works for people that they can rebuild their homes. Mm. Um, this working group, and it is due to report back on the 31st of July, yeah. some would say it's kicking the issue down the road again. No, I don't think so. I think what's what's going to come out of this is like when you have to have, you can't have a, report, uh, a, a working group too short or too long. I think six weeks is, is adequate time. Out of that, that, that will then go to government from the Minister for Housing, the recommendations, and they have to be implemented forthwith. It's that basic. Yeah, the issues though at hand here, like the protesters have just been, we, and we heard that from Paul yeah. Quinn's report, they say they want nothing less than 100% redress on this. So it's all very well having a working group and discussions mm. around this, but it appears there is just one solitary demand around this redress that they've been looking for for years. And if you look at the scheme that has been in place, yeah. it just doesn't, it doesn't, I, I think, doesn't I think with the scheme, homes. So they won't be happy when the scheme was brought in, they get the full redress here. When the scheme was brought in in 2020, I think it was done with the best of intentions. Uh, it was a 90%, uh, 10% scheme, a 10% from the owners, them, the, the householders themselves. But it, you suddenly found that the actual costs involved were far greater than was estimated under that particular scheme. What now is required is everyone just to, to have a constructive discussion and dialogue and find out what needs to be done uh, to get the houses back into the way they were prior to... Uh, this particular material affecting their, their, their concrete walls. And that, uh, that when it reports on the 31st of July, it reports recommendations that the householders in Donegal and Mayo and Limerick are comfortable with, 
And there then uh, those recommendations are brought to government by the Minister for Housing and yeah. implemented. And we know that Taoiseach expressed his shock when, when he saw the damage at first yeah. hand. And there's been a lot of sympathy by politicians out and about today saying, look, something needs to be done on this. It's long overdue. But the bottom line that you were talking about in terms of costs, and it's estimated to be one billion, maybe more, at the end of the day... Well, based on the current scheme, if it was implemented, the Taoiseach is saying around one billion. I can only speak personally. It's clearly going to cost more than that. How much more, I don't know. And I think that's what the working is that group... Going to, but is that going to play into a decision at the end of the day? And don't protesters know that and homeowners know that, but they know it needs to be done anyway. Yeah, but this, this, is, this has reached a human story. Donegal, just by its geography, people build their own homes and they, they now find a situation whereby their house, houses are crumbling around them. I, I feel now we have a defined action in place with a defined period of time involving all the stakeholders, including the householders themselves. And really what will come out, what has to come out of this on the 31st of July is something that the householders themselves are comfortable with. And then that has to be implemented by government. It's, it's, it's okay. that simple. Roisin Shortall, what do you think of this decision that's been made by government to form this working group? Well, look, I think it's quite clear that the original scheme was completely inadequate. It required people to stump up themselves and come up with a significant contribution. And that just wasn't done. This is first and foremost a real personal tragedy for the families concerned. And, you know, we've all seen the photographs in the media uh, where people's homes were literally crumbling before their eyes. So it's, it's a personal tragedy, but it's also an appalling scandal that this kind of thing can happen. And like this isn't the first time we've been in a position like this. We had pyrite. Mm. We also have a situation where uh, about 100,000 apartments that were built during the Celtic Tiger have serious building defects. And, you know, there's, there's a need for redress there too. But, I mean, this has to be a 100% redress scheme. Um, the government have not opposed that principle, but they need to now come up with a plan that will actually honour that commitment. So you think they're going down the right route with this? And taking I, this I think they absolutely stance. have to. But, you know, the other thing is that they must address the fact that it is a scandal now and they must take responsibility for the fact that there's been low building standards, uh, low material standards, self-certification, and building and like this has been going on for a long time and it's not only a historical thing like you, you know we have to bear in mind that Eamon Murphy our own Murphy excuse me introduced reduced standards in building in relation to fire safety just in 2018 so I mean well, I we, you end up paying a huge price if the government supports a reduction in building standards I agree with that. and you have gone along with that, that I wouldn't but agree with that just excuse me you have gone along with that for many years and you know it, it, it's a cowboy industry in many respects because of the lack I, of regulation can I, can I just say branding the entire building industry as cowboys is it's a gross mistake. I didn't mo say that. I said in many well, respects, that's what I interpret as. quarries, mo the no regulation most, of quarries. Most, what about self-certification? Most, most builders are doing are going about their job in, in, in a proper manner. I think what has to be, but I agree with Rogin on one thing. The matters you refer to in terms of building materials, I expect they'll all be part of the consideration okay. in the structure. But how, how long does it take for government to learn lessons in relation to this? And to, to impose adequate standards. A scheme was brought in in 2020. It transpired, and I think there was no ill intended, and people are doing the best of motives, that the level of costs that were involved were very okay. much underestimated. But, but Kieran, you time. know very well there are problems with I, quarries. 
you know, and people and, operating and, without and, planning and, permission and, and without regulation. Okay. We, but not, we want not, to, not and, in all and, locations. But, I, I, I wouldn't mind everyone branded. There are many people going about their work in a normal way. They go through the right. licensing process. I don't know you can tarry them with the same brush. Okay. And I, I want to move on to, to other matters because it was a busy news day today and there was announcements also made around travel restrictions and um, the fact that people now travelling from Britain will have to double their isolation mm. period. It was five days, it's now 10 days. And for those people who are vaccinated, they will still have to isolate for five days. Correct. What about this decision? Isn't it madness? We heard Simon Harris saying today that it'll have to be reviewed. Why was it announced? And, and you may well row back on it. Well, I'd hope... like. Obviously, you have the digital green cert coming in on the 19th of July anyway. Um, and what has now happened, they've obviously been in touch with the public health authorities in the UK who've said that this particular variant is 60% more infectious than, um, than the normal, than the, the existing variant. Um, and furthermore, that... But I suppose one thing that came out from public health in the UK yesterday was that the double dose is the key. So the double yeah. dose of Pfizer gives yeah. you 96%. Uh, AstraZeneca is 91, 92%. So like we in our transport committee, we're going to be looking at antigen testing. So yes. I would see that what this, this is a very much uh, uh, a very strong public health measure. But I would hope that it's, it's a relatively short term okay. measure. A short-term measure, but that decision around people who are vaccinated coming into mm. the country that they should have to isolate for five days. They're, I, they're, they're not they're really do, going to do they're that, doing are it, they? They're doing it in the context of because of the variant. If someone is vaccinated, it doesn't guarantee that, that, that they will not get the, they will not get the, the COVID, uh, 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 the COVID itself, right, the, the virus. What it does, in essence, means that... Um, the likelihood you will not be hospitalised. It doesn't mean you can't pass on the okay. virus. So, I mean, for me, and I, I suppose the issues we'll be taking up tomorrow is that if you take a, a COVID test, you can get a turnaround in 20 minutes and it will tell you that you're at your most infectious. A PCR test uh, can be taken three days prior and it may not be as effective when you get on board. So I think there's a wider discussion yeah, around that area. Yeah, we're going to get on to the antigen yeah. testing in one moment. But just on the subject, um, Roisin Short, all your party would have been strong proponents of mandatory quarantine. And there are questions being raised that if you're bringing in this 10-day isolation period, are you really going to be able to police that? Would you think that mandatory quarantine is something that should be considered uh, to ensure that people do stay isolated for the period that they're supposed well, to? Well, first of all, in relation to people who are fully vaccinated and there has been the lapse of time mm. since their second vaccination, it is hard to understand why they're expected to quarantine at all. Given that, you know, society is opening up and people who are fully vaccinated are, generally speaking, permitted to participate fully in everything and don't have to take uh, uh, precautions. Public health advice. So, so yeah, but, but I, I don't know why it's happening in relation to I people travelling. I presume it's happening because well, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's basically the Delta uh, variant and they're making that particular decision at this moment. Yeah, it would be very helpful if we heard from Neffert mm. and heard what the exact public mm, health advice is. Yeah. There hasn't been any briefing at all in relation to any of this. Mm. I made the point before, the opposition hasn't been briefed on COVID since December. Right? So there's no sharing of information. There's no access. Why is that? Why is there not briefing, cross-party briefing? But I, I wouldn't be privy to, obviously, the workings of government, right? I, I assume that, the, the, obviously, you have interaction, Roger, and you have no, there's no, question, you've questions there's no, in the and, door on a repeat well, basis. Just, just to point out, for the last three weeks, the Minister for Health hasn't appeared in the Dáil and hasn't taken either oral or written questions. 
But and he has been fearless. He has been very, he's been that very is a real active, very active in the Dáil and committee over we a long period of time. We don't get any briefings at all and haven't for some time. So, but you so, do in the Dáil so, in the normal course of it. Sorry, the minister hasn't been in the Dáil for the last three weeks and there's no questions being answered. The HSE isn't responding to queries either. Now, you know, part of that is due to the, co uh, to yeah. the, the cyber attack, yeah. but that doesn't explain the whole thing. However, look, I just want to make the point. Just quickly in on relation, the in relation to people, issue, because yeah. people will wonder, because your, your party's been very strong proponents of that and Yes, and, and, and it, it has in, been very successful yeah. at times when there were, you know, when there were serious threats. And we've called for it because it was what the public health advice called for. And we support operating to the public health advice. Now, we don't know what the public health advice is in relation to what should happen now in the context of the Delta de variant. Now, so I take not it... Sure. Well, well, government, no, government no, obviously follow public health advice. Yeah, in fairness, I, I, I take it that the change from five days to 10 days is on the basis of public health advice. And if that's the case, we fully support that. But I would also make the point that there, you need to do more than that. I mean, there's little or no su supervision of the home quarantining. So there needs to be greater contact with people who are supposed to be home quarantining. I mean, we need to be cautious about this in relation to the transmissibility of the 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 uh, the, the, the Delta yeah. variant. And but there's also work that needs to be done in terms of testing and tracing yes. and really hunting down that new variant yeah. and identifying where it is and ensuring that people are notified okay. about that. Okay, I want to get I, I want to get on yeah. to uh, tomorrow. Dr. Yeah. Tony Hulan is going to appear in front of uh, the Oireachtas Transport Committee, of which you are chair, mm. and he's going to be asked answering questions on his stance on antigen testing. What do you make of his views and his reluctance around antigen testing and the use of it specifically in the aviation sector for getting flights back on track? Well, we've heard he's made general observations. We'd hope they'll be very detailed tomorrow. And what we really want to do is want to probe the scientific side around the use of antigen testing, not to replace PCR, but to be complementary and sit alongside it as part of the toolbox in terms of the public health response to COVID. So what we'll be, the type of questions we'll be asking, we had Professor uh, Mark Ferguson, who's the Chief uh, Government Scientific Advisor. We also had Professor Michael Minya, a renowned Harvard University in terms of all air antigen testing. What we'll be probing is, is the, the premise that rapid antigen testing could be hugely effective in terms of people coming into Ireland. A PCR test taken uh, three days prior to arrival as required now doesn't guarantee mm. that you aren't uh, highly infectious when you're boarding a plane. Um, and whereas a rapid antigen test, and it takes 24 hours for a PCR test, a rapid antigen test can be turned around 20 minutes and it will tell you whether you're highly infectious. Okay. And so we want to see, can we, is it something that we, we can, and Really, I suppose the proposal we're putting, they would set up a pilot program with a flight going from here to uh, the UK, uh, test rapid antigen testing prior to the digital green start coming in on the 19th yeah. of July. And uh, most other countries in Europe yeah. are going to lower rapid antigen testing anyway. The, we don't want our industry disadvantaged because this, of that. This is the point I was going to get to. We are an outlier when it comes to our lack of antigen testing. When you look at all the countries that are doing it around Europe and elsewhere, we're just not doing it. And even that pilot programme that you mentioned there, mm. like that, arguably that pilot programme could have been done a couple of months yes. back. It could have been done we still, we still have a period, in order we still to have see a, how it works. We still have a period of time. We looked for us to be done as a committee. It hasn't happened today. Uh, the HSE themselves have produced a report published yesterday only on antigen testing. 
uh, will be probing on that. Going to, 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 briefly, do you think it's going to happen? You've got Dr Hulan in front of the committee yes. tomorrow and it's all very well having these conversations. But do you think it's actually going to happen? I think if you're... We're at a crossroads at the moment. If we just stick solely with PCR testing, we're under risk that we're going to slow down the recovery of the aviation sector and the, in the economy. But more importantly, we're under risk that another tool in terms of reducing the risk of, the, of, the, of uh, the virus and detecting the virus, we won't use it. So my view is, let's have uh, antigen testing alongside okay. PCR testing, and we can roll it out. Okay. Uh, it's, it's happening at the moment in higher education. There's a pilot scheme underway in, yeah. in four universities. And we know, we know the calls uh, And so I think I, it has a big case to make, okay. and we're very much looking forward All to our right. meeting tomorrow. Okay, well, let's move now to the world news stage. And US President Joe Biden has held landmark talks with EU leaders in Brussels in the first such formal discussions since the Trump years. Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray told me about the significance of the talks, which come on the eve of an attempt by Biden to repair relations with Russia. Yeah, I think that's actually the main point, really, that these sort of meetings of the past few days, the G7, the NATO meeting yesterday, the EU-US meeting today, the tone of all that about uh, rebinding the connection between you know, the two sides, European sides and the US, and particularly the EU uh, and the US. That would never have happened in the past four years because we know that Trump is obviously quite hostile to the European Union. And we did see a lot of agreement in many areas, in particular about better trade and cooperation uh, in the coming years in relation to technologies and so on. Um, and the beginning of the end to the longest running ever trade dispute for Boeing and Airbus. Um, and also an agreement on China, although not so much substance about how to deal with China. We did hear from NATO yesterday, a very strong statement about concerns about China uh, basically posing as a strategic challenge when it comes to the military might, the political might, uh, human rights issues and so on. So I think that there's a lot to, I suppose, to in terms of substance a lot did emerge over the past few days, but most of all, it's really returned to multilateralism as a way of paving, staving off totalitarianism. That's essentially what Joe Biden came to do. Mm. Um, on the subject of the Delta variant, because it's been very much to the fore here, um, given the growing concern about it and the moves that Britain has made, has there been much happening in the EU on that with regards vaccines, travel plans? Actually, the EU and the member states are looking forward to forging ahead with the plans to have the COVID uh, certificate so people can start travelling again throughout the bloc of the European Union. Um, I think that's supposed to be available really from the 1st of July. Most member states, the vast majority, will have that ready for the 1st of July and will expect people to start travelling as of then. Definitely the Delta variant has come into the conversation when it comes to uh, the UK and access for UK travellers to the continent. And there is, I think, all the emergency break when it comes to travel so that, you know, um, restrictions can, can apply. But certainly when it comes to, you know, say sun destinations and travelling to places like Spain and Portugal uh, on the mainland Europe, that's still pretty much going ahead. OK, let's look at Joe Biden's travel plans now because he's arrived in Geneva, big talks tomorrow between himself and Vladimir Putin. What are we expecting there? 
it's really interesting, actually. Um, we don't exactly know what's going to uh, emerge from this. You know, some people are worried that they're giving Putin a platform with Joe Biden, where Putin will essentially just humiliate the West again. And um, there's real concern around that. But Biden yesterday said that NATO, most other NATO leaders were thanking him for trying to engage with Putin. There's a concern that appeasement doesn't work with someone like Vladimir Putin and that he won't actually uh, come back to the fore and he won't engage in sort of the multilateral system or international order. But there's a lot of problems with uh, with Russia. We know that uh, Russian-Western relations are at their lowest point since the Cold War. Putin said that himself. And obviously, when it comes to human rights issues around Alexei Navalny, Roman Protasevich in, in, Lukash, in uh, Belarus, there are real concerns. But I think first and foremost, from Joe Biden's point of view and also from Western point of view, you know, there's concerns about Russia meddling in democratic elections and trying to um, essentially thwart democratic elections throughout the West. And Joe Biden really wants to inter intervene before that happens again, like it did in 2016. But there won't be a joint press conference between the two. We'll just have to see what they can come out with, whether there will be any sort of joint statement. I doubt, so. I doubt that. Nobody really has the highest of expectations for this, to be honest, Claire. Okay, Shona Murray, you're a News Europe correspondent. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank okay. you. Now, coming up next, how to stop prolonging the pandemic, why global vaccine equality is vital to our recovery. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, the head of the World Health Organization says the number of new coronavirus cases reported globally has dropped for the past seven weeks. It's the longest period of decline since the pandemic began. But at a press briefing, WHO officials said the number of COVID-19 deaths wasn't falling as quickly and unequal access to vaccines was threatening further progress. The virus is moving faster than the global distribution of vaccines at the G7 summit on Saturday, I said that to end the pandemic, our shared goal must be to vaccinate at least 70% of the world's population by the time the G7 meets again in Germany next year. To do that, we need 11 billion doses. The G7 and G20 can make this happen. 
Well, I'm joined on Skype now by Colm O'Gorman, Executive Director of Amnesty Ireland. Uh, this is a big area of interest for you, Colm. Um, much made about our own rollout and the number of jabs going into arms and how quickly we can get it done. But you're saying, unless we look at this from a global perspective, we're going to prolong this entire pandemic. Indeed, Claire, ourselves as Amnesty and our partners in the People's Alliance, a global coalition of organisations who are campaigning for equal access to vaccines on a global level have been clear now for many months. Uh, ensuring that there's equal access to vaccines is both a public health, but also a human rights imperative. You know, as we've heard repeatedly over the last year, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And right now, access to vaccines is effectively being controlled by a monopoly of a small number of pharmaceutical companies who have benefited from the investment of 100 billion in public money to produce these vaccines, and who thus far are refusing to allow access to uh, uh, technology, to share technology information, who have opposed and blocked a waiver of intellectual property rights that would allow for a massive ramp up and scale up in the production of vaccines. That would mean, for instance, we could ensure uh, that everybody, 80% of the population in the poorest and middle income countries in the global south, uh, had uh, access to vaccines by May of next year. That's based on analysis that, that we've carried out. But thus far, unfortunately, very many wealthy countries, including the EU, and sadly Ireland seems to be part of this approach, um, are blocking uh, a TRIPS waiver, a waiver at the, the World Trade Organization, that would allow for that kind of scale up in vaccines. I mean, effectively, profit is, putting, is being put before people's rights uh, and uh, before public health. We've seen nine new COVID billionaires produced as a, as a result of these vaccine. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing an abject failure to ensure access to vaccines, particularly in the global south. So we're all at risk uh, until that's resolved. Um, do you think the responsibility all lies with Big Pharma on this column, that they really need to step up and, and build more plants and, and, and get more bodies on the ground to do the job and to vaccinate the world's population in those critical um, developing world countries where it's so important that people get vaccinated? Actually, I think responsibility rests with states, uh, with the EU, with, with states around the world, particularly with wealthy states who are blocking an initiative that's supported now by over 100 states worldwide, that the World Health Organization has gotten completely behind, that would see the temporary waiver of intellectual property rights that would allow for a significant scaling up in manufacture and production of vaccines right across the world. And, you know, we hear from pharmaceutical companies and frankly, too often from governments, including our own, who defend that position, who says that manufacturing capacity simply doesn't exist. That's a nonsense. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, early last year, uh, one uh, uh, factory that produced uh, uh, cancer medications in Germany was acquired by a, a biomedical company. And within six months, that, that uh, factory was, was pumping out uh, millions of doses of vaccines for Pfizer. Uh, this factory had never, ever produced vaccines before. So it's possible to scale up existing pharmaceutical plants and other plants uh, within a reasonable time frame with reasonable investment and massively scale up uh, uh, um, uh, production of vaccines. Okay. But that won't happen yeah. unless we see intellectual property rights waived and unless we see a significant investment in vaccine production right across the world. So that it and briefly, Colm, tell us why this should matter to all of us when we look at the threat of variants down the line. Um, this two-tier vaccination system, why it could be so detrimental to each one of us. 
Well, I mean, everybody is now clear that in the absence of, of vaccination, we will see more and more infections. And when we see more infections happening across the world, in, in, as we're now seeing, for instance, a massive increase in infections in part of the global south, we'll see new variants emerge. And we've seen the impact of that uh, with the Delta variant, which originated in India, now being the dominant variant, for instance, in the UK. If we don't vaccinate everybody everywhere, we're not protecting everybody, but we're also leaving many of us in this part of the world seriously exposed to new variants which will emerge. So uh, states like Ireland, the EU states, uh, uh, leading industrial states, the G7, for instance, failed abjectly last weekend to act in a purposeful way on this, need to set aside the interests of pharmaceutical companies and start acting in the interests of the human rights of all of their people and people everywhere and in the interests of public health. Um, we need a TRIPS waiver and we need a vaccine to be available to everybody everywhere. OK, Colm O'Gorman, thank you for joining us tonight on that. Um, I want to bring you in here, um, Kieran. What do you think of what's being said there, that we really need to step up? It's not just Big Pharma, but, you know, well, I, I countries think, and, and wealthier I, I countries think the, the head are, are of blocking, blocking Well, the head this. of WHO made, made an observation, and, and, and Colm O'Gorman as well. I think we all agree to ensure we bring the virus fully under control you have to have the entire world population, 70% plus uh, vaccinated. That's a given. Uh, we obviously, we, and I look at it, I suppose, on a number of levels. We have to get our own population vaccinated here. And Rogine and myself would have many of our constituents still waiting on vaccines. Uh, secondly, I think it's about as well the state that we maintain the quality. We as a country are, are funding through COVAC, which is the body set up to look at the administrating the vaccines worldwide in terms of putting infrastructure into, into the country. So you, you, you have the proper capability of rolling out the vaccine, yeah. but it is, it is something that obviously will have to be fully tackled. And I think it will obviously involve the G7 and Europe finding that way forward. But yeah. I don't think it's as simple as just looking at uh, a, a simple thing. I think it's, it's a multi-layered. Right, it's not a simple solution. Would you agree with that, Roshan Shortall? Look, this is a pandemic. It's causing devastation across the world. There are major human rights issues involved in this. And I mean, the idea that Europe or states can protect itself without ensuring that it plays its part in the world in relation to the access to in relation to access to vaccines is just like not only does it go against uh, human rights, but it's absolutely foolish. It is a pandemic and no country is safe until every country is safe. And it's not enough just to contribute to COVAX. I mean, right, you know, the G7 have contributed one billion euro yeah. uh, to this. That's all very well, but I mean, when you one billion doses, I yeah. should say. But we heard from the the WHO that they need eleven billion yeah. doses, a, a, a and, drop, and like this is only a, dro a drop in the ocean. Go, 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 and and yeah. what is required is the trips uh, commitment. And e the, e I, I'd very e much e like e to see. Equally, I'd very much Roshin, like to see Ireland signing up to that because that is how okay. we actually address right. this issue. This Look. is how we keep everybody safe by ensuring that we waive the intellectual property rights for big pharma. Okay. I just and, want to, and that they play their part. Well. I want to but move on to other to matters now. On. I want to move on to other matters now briefly. This caused an awful lot of disquiet over the weekend regarding our maternity hospitals not being open for partners of women who are giving birth. What is the issue and why is this still continuing? We saw on Twitter um, one mm. dad to be saying, last night I drove my 36-week pregnant wife into the coom with serious pains, vomiting, headaches and dehydration. She was also really scared. I was asked to be allowed in only to be sent back to sit in the car. The, um, the government, the minister, 
uh, public health CMO have all stated that normal uh, situations should resume for, for fathers being able to, or, or mothers or whoever, being able to visit, uh, partners being able to visit uh, into maternity hospitals to see, see the birth of their child. Birth of their child. It's happening in, in many of the hospitals, but in some of them it's not happening the way it should be. It's and it seems to be individual hospitals taking individual decisions. And certainly I know that the HSE, I've been informed that the HSE have been carrying out audits. Mm-hmm. The greater majority are complying, but some are not. And that needs to change. Um, would you agree that the majority are complying with this call to ease up on the restrictions? I think the, the response has been very mixed yeah. from hospitals. Like it's five weeks since Tony Holland said that there is no public health reason for excluding uh, partners. Look, this is uh, one, one of the most important life events that a woman can have in giving birth and for her partner. And it is just inhumane to prevent a partner be, being in attendance. Now, there is no reason why they shouldn't be there. Yeah. And the HSE really needs to become much more active so what needs in to relation to now because actually, if this call I, was made five weeks ago and yeah, there's still a and bit we of a were told the HSE were going to contact hospitals directly but we're still hearing there complaints are, yeah, about there this. There are still a number, so, still a number of hospitals need to get to the bottom that are of not this complying. very quickly. There it's is still a number. It's just not on. It's that not, shouldn't be happening. It's not in women's interests. It's not in their partner's interests and it should be addressed very quickly. Yeah and I, 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 I wanted to find out precisely what the situation was right up to date and there are a small number of hospitals still not complying maternity hospitals with what is really a human rights issue in terms of partners being able to see the better of their child with, 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 with the mother. And that needs to change. And whatever, if the hospitals have issues around, uh, we'll say, uh, the size of, of, of just the size of the area, come to the HSE and ask for resources. But, but you can't have a situation whereby uh, a partner is unable to attend the birth of their child. Okay. It's a huge experience right. for everyone. Uh, coming up next on The Tonight Show, Minding Your Heart and the Lessons of Footballer Christian Eriksen's Cardiac Arrest. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, I'm joined here in studio by Bridget Sinnott from the Irish Heart Foundation, who's here to talk about the Christian Eriksen case in which the soccer star suffered a cardiac arrest on the pitch at Euro 2020. Today, he posted a picture from his hospital bed as he continues his recovery. And that was such a a welcome picture to see, Bridget, I think, for anyone who saw that match and, and the resulting images that were broadcast right around the world. Um, it was a very frightening moment on the pitch and for people watching on as well it, w- it was shocking to see mm-hmm. but it was the quick actions and the fact that there was a defibrillator so close at hand that he's able to weigh from his hospital bed today that's that's everything with cardiac arrest it happens so suddenly there's often no warning at all and then you had that it was recognized so fast that he was in trouble and like I was even saying it really was the place to have a cardiac arrest he was center stage people could see what was happening and you know, he collapsed and it was recognised early. They called for help. They started CPR. They had a defibrillator on site. Everything, you know, everything lined up for him. So he had the best chance of survival. There was no doubt about it. And I think it's focused people's minds, as you say, because we saw it on the world stage that this could happen anyone at home out of the blue. And they don't necessarily have a defibrillator. They don't have quick access to one. Uh, 
you were saying that it's really important uh, that people know where their nearest one is. Mm. That's the thing. Again, like I was saying, you know, it happens so suddenly that, you know, everybody goes around every day. They're not expecting this to happen. And then when it happens, suddenly you are in a fluster. So the first thing to do is to ring the emergency services 999 or 112. And then the call taker there will tell you exactly what to do. They'll ask you some questions. So you need to listen to them. You need to answer the questions. And then they'll help you recognise whether the person needs CPR or not. And then they'll direct you how to do the CPR. So if you can listen, you know, if you listen to what you're being told, you can't go wrong. And then the next thing is that they'll ask you, do you know where your nearest AED is? If there's somebody else with you or if there's one nearby. And if you know where that is, well, then it's very easy as well. If there's somebody, obviously, to go for the AED. Using the AED is simple as well. Switch it on. It tells you what to do. So, you know, CPR and AEDs are simple. And we all just need to get our minds focused, know where the AEDs are and not be afraid to start CPR. And yeah, manual CPR, that's one, it, it's one thing knowing where a defibrillator is and, and many people may not have access to one immediately. Can that be very powerful in itself in, in reviving someone in that situation? Like we saw on the pitch that Ericsson was in fact, he had died. Yeah. So the minute that you start CPR, you double a person's chances of surviving a cardiac arrest. So never be afraid. And I'm always saying it's better to do CPR on someone that doesn't need it than not do it on someone that does. And you can't go wrong and you can't do any harm. So always, if somebody is unresponsive, you think that they're not breathing adequately, call the emergency services and start doing compressions. And if there isn't an AED nearby, keep doing those compressions because there are several people in Ireland alive today because somebody kept doing compressions maybe for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, then an AED arrived and it saved our lives. So, you know, it's the simple skills that okay. save lives. Do you think we're well resourced around this? Because it has put into focus the, the money that is being spent in this area around, you know, emergency aid. Um, do, do you think that there needs to be more visibility and more accessibility? Yeah, I think really what it is, is we probably need to get some more AEDs onto chests. So like that with AEDs, we probably need better signage. We also need to make sure, you know, that AEDs are accessible because, you know, people buy AEDs, but you need to have it where everybody can see it. We need to shout a little bit more about that we have an AED in this building and that everybody knows where it is. And we have lots of AEDs in Ireland. That's the thing. There are there are so many AEDs out there. So, you know, they it's are an awareness around. campaign. It's, it's, that's it's needed, purely awareness. Christian Eriksson has done more in the last few days for awareness than has been done for a long, long time. Like we have been on inundated in the Irish Heart Foundation. Our website has had so many searches in the last few days as well. And like we've been doing this, we had a campaign last year called the Hard and Fast Rule before COVID hit. We were given free CPR training to communities across Ireland. We didn't have this reaction to it. We've been doing a CPR for schools programme since 2015. The teachers are teaching CPR in schools in 533 post-primary schools in Ireland since 2015. But 
people don't know these things because we haven't had the reaction that we've had from this. And if people want more information, uh, give us details around your website and where they can yeah. find that information, Bridget. So if you go on to irishheart.ie and if you just even click onto the CPR, you can see there are three videos that we've put up. One is about making the emergency call. It goes exactly the questions that you'll be asked. The second one is about doing CPR and the third one is about using an AED. And even if you look at those, you can certainly make a difference between life and debt. And then obviously when courses come back a little bit more for community, they will be more available, I would imagine, over the next little while because of COVID, they haven't been, you know, they haven't been available the same way. OK, and you're saying anyone can do it. Like a child can perform CPR as well as an adult and it doesn't need to be a very, you know, strong adult in order to do it. Something is better than nothing. OK, that's yeah. great. Thank you for that, Bridget. And that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast from all the late team here. Good night and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.